0: Good morning, Church. My name's Jack, and I'll be reading Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as of the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought these charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nation of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my garments and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily rations 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. And I also preserved in the works of this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one aughts and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people.
1: All right, thank you, Jack. Let's pray. Lord, there's such uh, practical and and real issues going on in this chapter, and it just seems to me like um, a lot of us need need to hear it, learn from it, and it's gonna hit hit us differently. probably, uh, depending on whether we are uh, poor, at least by our nation's standards, standards poor, or whether we are wealthy. Um, so, Lord, unfold the truths of this chapter to us this morning, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would find in us humble hearts, tilled up soil, to receive rec- uh, correction, and adjustment in our lives as that is your great uh, work in us, conforming us into the image of Jesus. So speak to us now, we pray, in his great name. Amen. All right, hey, a couple of quick things before we get into it here. Uh, My wife wanted me to tell you guys, okay, she is doing a vocal workshop on December 2nd. That's Saturday, December 2nd. And so we wanna raise up more singers. And uh, you know, my wife is, of course, a very, very gifted worship leader and singer, and she has a heart to wanna help uh, people learn how to sing and control their voice and use it for the Lord. So that's on December 2nd at 11 a.m., and it'll go for about an hour and a half or so. And so if you wanna Uh, kind of work on your voice and by the way all of God's people are to be singers like some of you are like no I'm not that's not my thing no it is your thing if you're a Christian I'm sorry it's your thing you can't you can't get out of it the moment the moment you accepted Christ you signed up for the choir you did well, later that evening on December 2nd, I think at 6.30, no, maybe might be 7, 7 o'clock, we're having what we're calling a worship circle. So again, you can bust out that beautiful voice of yours or bring a guitar or a djembe or whatever, and we're gonna form a circle, or maybe a couple of concentric circles depending on how many show up in the grindhouse, And we are going to sing and worship and probably do a few Christmas songs together, and it's going to be a blast. And so you are just welcome to come and bring an instrument, bring your voice, and we will sing Saturday, December 2nd at 7. Then I think Greg Bostock mentioned it, uh, but Christmas decorators meet in the grindhouse after service today. So if you want to be part of that, head to the grindhouse when we're done here. Okay, in chapter four, the work of the building of the wall, it stopped because of external adversity. You remember last week, or last couple of weeks, the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people surrounded them, they were threatening violence, they were trying to cause confusion. Nehemiah addressed this challenge through prayer and action prayer and action. By the way, prayer and action always go together. That's the way it works. Prayer is not a substitute for action. Action is not a replacement for prayer. They go together. Prayer and action are inseparable companions. The book of Nehemiah, you remember, it began with Nehemiah hearing about the desperate condition of God's people and the neglected ruins of God's city. His sorrow over the news launched him into a season of prayer. The season of prayer launched him into action and Nehemiah became a part of God's answer to his prayers. And that's the way it often works. Prayer often works like this. We begin to pray for something, for some issue, or whatever it is, and our heart enlarges for the issue. And pretty soon, God is drawing us into the story to be a part of the answer to the prayer. Nehemiah prayed. And then he encouraged God's people. Again, the enemies are surrounding, they're threatening. So Nehemiah, great leader that he was, he prays, always going to prayer. And then encouraged God's people by reminding them of how great God is. So he then, you remember, he positioned them along the wall in proximity to their families, their wives, their sons, their daughters. He then told them to not only take your tools to work on the wall, but go ahead and take your weapon. So when you strap on your tool belt, make sure you have a sheath on there for your sword because you're going to, while you're building, you're going to be fighting. Building and fighting. building for God's glory, fighting for your family while you build. That's exactly what we're to do today, gang. We're to join Jesus in the the greatest building project in the history of, of ever, the church, the big C church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is Jesus's great building project. So hell can't stop the building of the church. Now that doesn't mean that hell won't try, but it can't do it. The moment you get saved, you are a living stone that has been added to the church. That's 1 Peter 2, 5. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you, if you are a Christian here this morning, you're a living stone and you're a part of the big sea church, you're a part of this little sea church, and you are a part of the house of God that's being built to offer praises to God, the sacrifices of praises, but not only only are you a living stone, you're a fellow builder of the church now as well. A lot of people, a lot of Christians don't see themselves in that light, but it's true nonetheless. You are a part of Jesus's great building project. Let me just show you one example. Ephesians 4.11, and he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, the church. Did did you catch that? If I'm understanding understanding that correctly, and I think I am, as your pastor, I do what I do so that you can do what God has called you to do. So, So people tend to think of You know, ministry is, well, that's what the pastor does, or that's what the missionary does who goes overseas or whatever. Those are those people are in the ministry. What I do is ministry. Yeah, but my ministry is to equip you, the saints, for the work of your ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ, the church. We build all of us, we build and we fight, we build and we fight. That's the Christian life, it really is. We build the church, we fight the good fight of faith, we fight for our families, we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and so on. Well, the building of the wall paused in chapter four because of external enemies, the building of the wall pauses again in our chapter, chapter five, because of internal strife and division. Okay, this isn't external. This isn't the Samaritans and the Ammonites and the Arabians and all those guys. No, this is internal now. So there's four things I want you to take note of, and we're going to cook <laughs> along this morning. So number one, the great cry. The great cry. There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, against their Jewish brothers brothers. So great outcry in the Hebrew it means great in size, great in intensity. There were lots of people making a lot of noise. So whatever the issue was, it was coming to a boiling point. Something had to be done. So the situation was this. There was an economic downturn due to a famine. Prices were rising higher and higher. Inflation was out of control. Supplies were low. The government didn't care. Uh, They just wanted their taxes. The Persian uh, government, they hired 87,000 IRS agents to be able to, okay, I'm making that part up. But they wanted to get their taxes and they would get their taxes. And they generally did not use the taxes that they collected for the good of the people. It was to enrich the king. There were three groups of people that were under significant financial burden. So, so listen, if you're under financial burden this morning, okay, this chapter is for you. Okay, the first, the first group is there was a group of people who had no land, they had no assets, they had very little money, but they needed food. Again, this is famine, supplies are short, grocery shelves are empty, So it says in verse 2, there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. We're struggling here. We need some kind of help. Okay, so so they're not in a place where, you know, you can just go get a job somewhere or you can, they're they're in a real financial predicament. They don't have houses and, and uh you know property that they can mortgage or whatever get money from and so they are in a real pickle and there's a lot of people in that boat secondly there were some who had homes and property but they had to borrow money against the property in their homes in order to buy food that's verse 3 there were also those who said we are mortgaging our fields our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine so they they mortgaged, they, they used their assets as security against their loans. And as we'll see, they weren't able to pay the loan amount because of excessive interest. And so now their assets were being seized by the lenders. The third group, they were folks who had borrowed money to be able to pay their tax to the Persian Empire. Verse 4. There were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. So there's these groups of people that are struggling financially, so they're having to borrow money. They need to get money. Where, who's lending out all this money? Where's this money coming from? Verse 5, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brother's our children as their children yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves and some of our daughters have already been enslaved but it's not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards so here's here it is here's the picture the wealthy among god's people the jews were lending the money to the poor and according to verse 11 they were charging interest at the rate of 1 percent or one one-hundredth per month, which would add up to 12% interest per year, 12%. So that's a pretty good return if you're investing your money, right? You, you loan a hundred grand out and you're going to get 12 grand at the end. It's not bad. And if people couldn't keep up with their payment, the lender would then take their son or their daughter as a slave to work for them for no pay, just to pay down the debt. Or they would commandeer the properties uh, and and use the fields and so on uh, for their own gain. So at this point, I wanna point this out this morning, the story could start to shape up in our minds as rich people, bad. Poor people, good. Rich people, villains, boo. Poor people, heroes, victims. Rich people, oppressors. Poor people, oppressed. This is what we're dealing with in our culture today. There's an ideology that, that permeates our culture and dominates our campuses and it's, it's become almost the air that we breathe, it's become so dominant. But it's, it's rooted in, in Marxism, Karl Marx. Most of us older than 30 or so uh, are somewhat familiar with Karl Marx. But Karl Marx was an atheist. Who taught that society and life in general was all about power? It was all about power and power, uh, wealth and power were a zero-sum game. Therefore, whoever had the money had the power. Wealth and power, uh, those who had it, uh, because it was a zero-sum game, they wanted to keep it, and they would do anything they could to keep it. So you you. Apply that to our country right now, and those who follow this ideology, they say that that it's all about power, it's all about those who are in power, and they are the oppressors, and they are oppressing the victims of our culture, and so there needs to be a change in the power differentials. And so all the disparities in a, you know, capitalistic, free market kind of a society, like ours, are attributable to the, to the wealthy oppressing the poor. So, whosoever's poor can blame the wealthy who have been hoarding the money to themselves. Again, zero-sum game, right? There's only so much to go around. And so, the, in Karl Marx's time and in the Russian Revolution, there, there were two groups, the bourgeoisie, They were the rich, right? Kids today, I hear them saying bougie. (laughs) That's so bougie. That's a reference to bourgeoisie, like rich, fancy. So bougie means, oh, that's so fancy, or she's so fancy, or whatever. And then the proletariat is the other group. They were the poor. They were the labor force. So in this ideology, the bad guys were the the bourgeoisie, the rich people. The good guys were the, the proletariat, the, the poor people. So this ideology, it permeates our culture today and Marxism has expanded way beyond merely being a, a class struggle to now include race, and gender, and sexual preferences, and, and, and all the rest, and all the disparities, all the, the differences you know, between those who are maybe up here and those who are down here, um, the, and all, the, the, uh, uh, all these disparities, they are attributable to power differentials, and they should be remedied by what is called equity, not equality. So so those who buy into this ideology are not interested in equality. They're interested in equity, and they're two very different things. Equity argues for equal outcomes. So everyone gets the same thing at the end or at the outcome of the process. Equality argues for equal opportunity. That's at the front end. Everybody gets the same opportunity. Equity argues for leveling the playing field by taking from the rich and then redistributing it to the poor. Equality argues for everyone getting an equal shot. Forced equity that is the government coming in and redistributing wealth has resulted in the greatest atrocities in the histories of our world in the history of our world. Think The Soviet Union and Stalin and the Gulags and the 30 million dead. Think Mao, tens of millions dead. Think Pol Pot in Cambodia. All with this idea that we're going to level things out, equity, that this is the this is the thing that's going to usher in a truly glorious utopian society. This is a completely unbiblical way of thinking. Listen, it's not a sin to be wealthy. A few of you are going, "Woo!" Now, it's a sin to love money. As a matter of fact, the love of money is, is the root of, of all kinds of evil, so you've got to watch that. Loving money, which is, is the worship of mammon in the Bible, uh, it's the source of all kinds of wicked stuff. Greed is a sin in the Bible. Covetousness is a sin, but poor people can love money and be greedy and be covetous just like rich people can. So there's there's nothing inherently virtuous about being poor. You don't like get points for that. Nor is there something inherently evil or wrong about being wealthy. In the Bible, the issue is the heart, its character, its actions. The heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. And so at stake then, what, what determines whether a person is you know, a righteous wealthy person or an unrighteous or a righteous poor person or unrighteous is godliness. Are they godly? Are they walking in obedience to the Lord? So, You have godly rich people, ungodly rich people, godly poor people, ungodly poor people. Therefore, we can't attach some sort of moral judgment on someone in relation to how much money they have or don't have. It's it's irrelevant. So question, was Jesus rich or was he poor? (laughs) Yes. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for though he were rich, yet he became poor for our sakes that we might become rich in him. So Jesus was rich. He owned, literally owned it all. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything, he created Everything. It's all his, but he became poor. He divested himself of his wealth so he could become truly wealthy. Therefore, or so that we could become truly wealthy. Therefore, you can be like Jesus, whether you are rich or poor. That's the good news. You don't have to be hindered one way or the other. And as we'll see in a few minutes, it's a very wealthy guy that helps resolve this conflict a godly, wealthy guy. You know, we happen to live in the wealthiest nation on planet Earth. Do you, have you ever just thought about that? Like, whoa, what am I doing here? Wealthiest nation in the world, and perhaps in the history of the world. And I'm here. And being poor here is really, it's a great day in a lot of other places of the world. And though you may be struggling financially, you are, you are, by comparison, you are materially far better off than most of the world. For instance, 60% of the people in the world do not have indoor plumbing, running water or toilets. 60%, that's amazing to me. And so by contrast, and, and some of you have been to Central America, you know, you've been to Guatemala and in the mountain villages and we've been to Cambodia and Vietnam up in the jungles and so on. And it's like, man, by contrast, we live like kings. And, and we have thrones in our bathrooms to actually illustrate the point. <laughs> but in our story, you have the wealthy people lending money to the poor people. Again, all of these are, belief, these are all God's people, and you have the wealthy people lending money to the poor people in this desperate economy at 12% interest and, and using their properties and their children to secure the loans. And so if you default on your loan, if you're not making your payment, your field gets taken over or your children enter into slave labor to pay it off. So keep in mind, all of these are God's people interacting, the rich and the poor together. They go to church together. They worship together. Can you imagine? You're struggling financially. And someone from the church uh, agrees to to lend you money at 12%. And and you you couldn't make the payment because you're just not in the position to handle that kind of a heavy uh, interest payment in addition to the principal. And so they take your teenage son and daughter and say, they're going to live with me for a while and they're going to work for me. To pay off what you owe me. And so you show up to church this morning and all of a sudden you see your son and daughter getting out of that person's car and coming into church because they won't let you have your son and daughter until your debt's paid off. Do you think that might affect worship a little bit? Listen, Ephesians 6.10, not Ephesians, Galatians. 610 says that we are to seek to do good to all people but especially to the household of God you know people taking advantage God's people taking advantage of God's people who are struggling is not smiled upon by God not at all so There was a great outcry, but secondly, there was great anger. Great anger, that's verse 6. I was very, Nehemiah, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, and I took counsel with myself. So Nehemiah hears what's happening, gets the, the clear picture, and he just got super ticked off. I mean, he is mad. And so, question, is it a sin to get angry? No, it is not. God gets angry. Jesus got angry. Sin happens when we don't deal with our anger properly. Ephesians four twenty six: Be angry and sin not. Did you hear that? It comes across like a command: Be angry. Like don't don't mute that feel that, like when you you see the atrocities like we've seen in the last month in Israel with the, the horrific slaughter of the Jews by Hamas, get angry and sin not, and that's the key. Nehemiah was angry but rather than flying off the handle in a a fit of emotion, he took counsel with himself. He, you know, we would say he thought it through. He settled down. He went from visceral emotion to thoughtful, tactical planning on how to address the situation. This was how Nehemiah could be angry and not have it result in sin. So Nehemiah got control of his feelings and his thoughts so that he could lead the people through, so that there could be a solution to the controversy. Proverbs 1632 says, he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. You hear that? He who rules his spirit. Fruit of the spirit is self-control. So you, you don't, you, there's never a time when you just go and just let it fly. Never. You rule. You rule your spirit. It doesn't rule you. It doesn't dominate you, take over you. You rule it. And you're able to let out whatever is appropriate, godly and holy in a certain situation, like we will see Nehemiah do here. Nehemiah called a meeting, and he of all the people, the wealthy people, the lenders, and first he appeals to the lender's love. Verse 7 I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, You are exacting interest, each one from his brother. Four times the word brother is used in these verses. So Nehemiah said, You, you understand what you're doing. That you're, you're a believer, you worship Yahweh like these people, that makes them your brothers. So, so, how dare you exploit them? They weren't exploiting the heathen or their enemies. They were exploiting and taking advantage of their brothers, their church family, we would say. Well, the second appeal was to God's redemptive plan, verse 8, and he said to them, Nehemiah did, We are, as far as we are able, we have brought back our Jewish brothers and have been, that have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So listen, God, has God not shown that he's all about freeing his people? Remember Egypt and the slavery, he sends Moses, gets them free. They go back into slavery, into Babylon, and once again they're freed. and here they are. Now God's own people are bringing their people into slavery. And Nehemiah says, hey, there's still other of our Jewish brothers out there in the nations, and we've got a ministry that goes out to get them free, and we, we send people out into, to go rescue them and to get them free from slavery, and you're bringing our brothers into slavery. What? What is wrong with you? The end of verse 8. It just says, they were silent, and they could not find a word to say. <laughs> so they're, they're having a meeting, right? They're, they're like in the room like this. And Nehemiah's like, what, what is going on? And all these nobles and wealthy rich guys are just like, I don't have any words. Lost all my words. Didn't bring my words. Words are gone. And they're just heads down, right? Like they're feeling the weight of it, the shame of it. Listen, even as Christians, sometimes we can settle in to less than honorable attitudes and behaviors and and we can just kind of live with them. Because we've just been in it. You know, it becomes normal. And maybe we're running with a crowd that's doing the same kind of things. And we feel justified because we're just sort of comparing ourselves. Well, I'm with it. They're doing it. While I'm doing it. We're in it. It's all right. And so it takes a godly rebuke, some holy correction to wake us up out of it. Proverbs 17.10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows to a fool. So if you're a man of understanding, a woman of understanding, meaning a wise person, when that rebuke is brought to you, it's like, whoa. Whoa. David, you are the man. Deep. So verse 9, I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? So not not good, rich people, not good. The world is watching. And greater than that, God is watching. And, And, you know, when you fear the Lord, you don't fear anything else right? The fear of the Lord, it trumps all fears. So that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You fear the Lord, you fear nothing else. Then Nehemiah lays out a clear path to reconciliation. Verse 10, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest, return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, oil that you've been exacting from them. So Nehemiah, he sees that they're sorrowful. He sees their heads down, you know, and they're sunken down like, oh, we stink, you know. We've been bad. All right, here's the path forward. Give back all the interest that's been paid to you. Give back the fields, the houses that you've confiscated. Give back the sons and the daughters that are working in slavery for you. Give it all back. Well, that brings us Number three, in the great response, verse 12, they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And they called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And they also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from this labor who does not keep the promise so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. Especially all the poor people like, woo, amen. Like this has been a great meeting, right? (laughs) And they praised the Lord. And the people, meaning the rich people, they did as they had promised. These wealthy nobles and, you know, rulers and so on they repented of their sin. They also restored that which they had taken. Repentance is turning from sin. Restitution is restoring what we in our sin have taken from the people we've sinned against. So repentance and restoration, they go hand in hand. And it was a powerful act of humility by these wealthy believers. Beautiful. It was a win-win. The poor people all of a sudden had their homes and fields and their children back, and they received a pretty fat check for all the interest they had paid to that point. The rich guys won because though they had to give back the money and the stuff, their souls began to prosper again. They got out from under that dark greed thing that's always wanting to take and to profit and to get more and more and more. It's soul-sucking, joy-robbing greed. And there's people like that, that get so consumed by greed. I've gotta make more, I've gotta make more. And I've seen, and there's people that do very well. and, And they'll begin to make a lot of money in six figures and maybe even seven figures and they struggle with, and maybe even pull back from tithing, because they make a million dollars and they go, well, golly, I can't give a million or a hundred thousand dollars for a tithe. Why not? Why would you, maybe you should give more. I mean, if that's, I mean, you're making all this money now. now, now you should probably, rather than just increasing your standard of living, you should increase your standard of giving. If God increases you, I mean, spiritual logic would say you need to increase your generosity. If God's been generous to you and increases generosity to you, then you should increase your generosity to him. And yet people will put And that's the greed thing. Oh, well, we've got to be done. It's the last thing and we're done. The great generosity. So just dial into Nehemiah here. Verse 14: Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Nehemiah is a wealthy man. He's a rich guy. He was working in the king's presence, the king and the queen's presence of the, the Persian empire. He is a wealthy guy. He has carte blanche to the king's resources. He is, uh, would be afforded, because he's the governor now, he would have a food allowance. And he says, I refuse, me or my, my crew, my, you know, my circle, we refuse to use the allowance as the governor How many of you know that if you're the governor, you get allowances? You don't have to pay for your dinners, and you get a house to live in, a mansion, a governor's mansion, and you got all this stuff, and you have got cooks, and you have got nannies, and you don't pay for any of that stuff. That's on the government's dime. And so Nehemiah says, we got a food, I got a food allowance, I didn't use it. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, took from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silk. 40 shekels of silk, about 600 bucks, um, you know, daily for food allowance. Even the servants lorded it over the people, but I did not because of the fear of God. Nehemiah says, no, not gonna do it. This This is a desperate situation here, man. God's people are suffering, and so I'm not gonna use my allowance. I also persevered in the work on the wall and we acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for work. We didn't, Nehemiah was like, okay, we're developing this area now. What happens when you develop an undeveloped area? Property values go up, right? And so a person that's ahead of it going, I'm gonna go ahead and buy up some some lots because they're gonna be double in value in about five years from now. Nehemiah says, I didn't do that. I didn't do that, I'm not gonna enrich myself on this mission that God has called me to. Moreover, there were at my table, check this out, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. So Nehemiah, he's having 150 people over to dinner, and he's paying for it every day. An ox and six sheep coming out of his own pocket, and every 10 days he, he, he gets the best wine. Now, how many of you know that Nehemiah, he was the cup bearer for King Artaxerxes? How many of you know that Nehemiah did not go to Trader Joe's and get two buck chuck <laughs> for wine night? And he did this all at his own expense. And then the chapter ends, Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. Listen, gang, we need to treat one another with the love and the respect that we deserve as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We don't know how things are going to go in this world. We don't know how things are going to go. Things might get rougher than what they are right now. And if God's people don't take care of one another, well, who's going to take care of them? Not the government. If you haven't noticed, the government's not all that pro-Bible and pro-Christian at this point in life. And so we've got to care for one another. Do good first, priority to the household of faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, so practical. And as we come to the table, Lord, if uh, we find in us greed or covetousness or love of money and all that kind of yucky stuff, God may re- repent of it and maybe the Holy Spirit has brought the rebuke and brought the correction to us today. Lord, I pray that my brothers and my sisters wouldn't squander the moment, but that they would act upon it and say, God, I'm sorry. And maybe, maybe there's something of restitution that God would have you do. Lord, speak to your people, even as we come to the cross where we are confronted once again with the one who, though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sake that through his poverty we might become rich in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're invited to make your way to the communion table. If you're not a Christian here this morning, uh, we ask that you would uh, refrain from the communion table. Instead, you you can give your life to the Lord this morning. You really can. It's as simple as turning from your sin and turning to Jesus, admitting your need for him. there may be somebody out there sitting down right now that the Holy Spirit is convicted and if you're sitting down and realizing that you're not a Christian you're not born again you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus I'm going to ask you right now to bow your head and to pray and to say Lord Jesus I believe in you, I have sinned against you, please wash away my sin. Make me a new creature, a new person. Thank you for dying for me, for becoming poor so that I may become rich in you, in your name, amen. Let's take the bread. Let's hold it before the Lord. Lord, as we we hold this bread in our hands, bread that's been pierced like you have been pierced, bread that's been uh, leavened, or unleavened rather, just like you are without sin, without leaven, bread that's been burnt, just as you have been burnt by the wrath of God upon the cross. So, Lord, we take our greed and our covetousness and our love of money and material stuff and we lay that at the foot of the cross, Lord, and help us to desire to be rich in God, to be rich in the riches that transcend this life that go beyond our 70 or 80, how many years we get on this planet. So, Lord, open up in us hearts of generosity, do not look so much at how we can profit off, off of people, but how we can serve people and bless them and help them. Thank you, Jesus. That that's the story of your life. May it increasingly be the story of ours. Bless this bread now in your name. Amen. Let's see. And you may, you may still feel a, a certain sense of shame over things that you've done in your life, exploiting people or whatever. And so, what you need to know is that the blood of Christ—that not only did, did Jesus pay for our sins upon the cross, but He bore our shame. <laughs> so that sense of uh, that of just a feeling yucky that haunts you like Jesus bore that too and so you don't have to walk around with that all the time because the enemy will will exploit that and will try and keep you kind of crippled and away from the blessings that God has for you let's pray over the cup Lord thank you for the blood of Jesus that not only cleanses us from all sin, all unrighteousness, but also delivers us from shame, from guilt, from those negative emotions that are attached to our sins, Lord. So God, would would you make us free in here this morning? Make us a free people. And Lord, as you do, may the joy of the Lord explode in our hearts And may the joy of the Lord be our strength all this week long. Bless the cup as we remember. You took nails into your hands and into your feet. You took a spear into your side. You bled for us. You gave your life for us, literally. Bless the cup as we remember. In your name, amen. Let's